Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This is Noah speaking to you. We're going to pick up where we left off last time with the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Patanjali, I'm going to say it the wrong way from time to time. Because I'm not an expert in the ancient language, and therefore I kind of just say it the way it looks to me. We're not going to have a lot of context for where we're jumping in here. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I suggest you do so. Um, We had left off where there's a discussion of the concept of surrender to God. So we're talking about freeing ourselves from the mental activities that engage us in the suffering with the material world within which we exist. And so we're finding ways to reduce the activity of the mind. And in so doing, we get in touch with a spiritual mode of being. And one way of describing that is to commune with God, if you like. And so in Patanjali, there's a definition of God, which we discussed last time, and that is the universal indweller, a particular yet universal indweller. free from affliction and hindrance, having no bondage to action, the seed of action or the fruit of action. And then it says, in God the seed of omniscience is unsurpassed. That's Bon Giovanni's translation. And Charles Johnson says, in the master is the perfect seed of omniscience, the ability to see everything. Because if it's a particular yet universal indweller, then it is a single experiencer viewing everything from all nodes within the conscious network and it's arguable what defines the conscious network we can say with certainty that all living beings have a conscious experiencer within them and my gut instinct is that, well, every entity, an organization, is essentially organized by a conscious entity. Everything that we see that's organized in our immediate world is organized by a consciousness. If there's no consciousness there, then there's really no organization. Different forms of consciousness may be at cross-purposes when it comes to organization, but they all have their own sense of organization. If you go into a barn and the farmer hasn't been there in 10 years, it's going to look like a mess to us. But, of course, all the rats and the spiders and whatever else has taken up residence in the barn, they've organized whatever's the material in that area to their particular frame of reference, their consciousness. And, of course, 
if someone goes into that barn and decides this is my task to organize this barn, that's going to change the conditions substantially and disturb a lot of the organizations of those other consciousnesses that had been uh, setting things up for themselves within there. So you can say that in many respects, organization is a matter of perspective, but it's also an attribute of a conscious effort. And so when you see something that's organized, there's a pretty good chance that there's a consciousness in there doing its thing. That's the basic argument that I make in the paper that I linked the last time, which I will also link again now. So when we look at something like a galaxy, it's obviously organized. If we look at something like a molecule or an atom or even a particle, these things are definite entities, and a definite entity has some kind of basic organization, just like a cell. A cell is an organized group of molecules. And you could say an, that an organism is an organized group of cells or an organized group of organs, higher organisms. At any rate, in God the scene of omniscience is unsurpassed. Not being conditioned by time, God is the teacher of even the ancients. That's Bon Giovanni's version. Charles Johnson says, He is the teacher of all who have gone before since he is not limited by time. I derive from that God is the teacher of all throughout the ages, for God is not limited by time, which is a wonderful concept when you consider the trigrams. The trigrams, and I think I may have mentioned this last time, the heaven trigram, three yang lines, past, present, future, also yod he vov he the tetragrammaton, the holy name of God, is associated with I am that I am is how it's translated. But there's also a play apparently within Hebrew. If you rearrange the yod he vov he it's different versions of the verb to be. So I am, I was, I will be. That's an expression of eternity. And that's what's being said here as well. So here we have tying together a basic theme within Taoism, Abrahamic tradition, and Hinduism. The eternal nature of God. Here it says, God's voice is Om. His word is Om. God's voice is Om. So Om is also a three-in-one expression that seems to also be related to time. It's obviously being mentioned right here. It's the sound of the, of the universe, the universal sound, the tone, the word of God, if you like. So you have the being of God, eternal, and you could say that the word is the organizational property of the universal yet particular indweller. The repetition of Om should be made with an understanding of its meaning. Let there be soundless repetition of Om and meditation thereon. So this is another form of meditation, to consider an object as a sound. And so you have various forms of, of meditation being discussed here, many, many different types. And we think typically of an object as being a physical object, but it doesn't have to be a physical object. We're going to see that not only can it be a sound object, a soundless sound object, which is a fascinating thing to think about, 
but you can make the sound om in your mind without articulating it into the universe. And that is the kind of ringing of the eternal bell, you could say. You can also have objects that are of consciousness itself, which is kind of where this is leading. So we're going to continue here. From this repetition is gained introspection and also the disappearance of obstacles. That's Bon Giovanni's translation. We have Charles Johnson here saying, Thence come the awakening of interior consciousness and the removal of barriers. It's this repetition of Om, the silent repetition of Om. So I say, by the silent repetition of Om comes the awakening of interior vision and the dissolution of obstacles. I have to admit, I haven't practiced this very much. But, you know, one of the great things about talking about this stuff, particularly making some sort of a public presentation like this, is that it kind of forces your hand. So I think I'm going to give this one a real try for a while and see if some of the obstacles dissolve, because God knows there are definitely some obstacles. I guess God would know that actually there really are no obstacles. Isn't that kind of the message being, <laughs> being given us here? So, yes, we'll see. I'd be curious to know if, if any of you practice this the consideration of the object of the silent repetition of Aum in the mind, and understanding the meaning of Aum as being a representation of the eternal word of God. You could say that the word is an expression from consciousness as energy into the apparent physical universe. So this is also reflected in the, in the article that I've been discussing briefly, that Energy is the interface between consciousness and the, we'll call it, physical domain. So, energy is fundamentally an expression of consciousness. Seems like it's worth trying, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that makes an awful lot of sense. How can we know if we don't try it? So, I, I will consider it my sacred duty, you could say, to really give this a whirl and... If anything happens, I'll report back to you on it. Continuing on here. Disease, inertia, doubt, lack of enthusiasm, laziness, sensuality, mind-wandering, missing the point, instability. These distractions of the mind are the obstacles. It would be great to get rid of all those things. Here we go. Charles Johnson saying, The barriers to interior consciousness, which drive the psychic nature this way and that, are these... Sickness, inertia, doubt, light-mindedness, laziness, intemperance, false notions, inability to reach a stage of meditation or to hold it when reached. That's another great glimpse into what the Sanskrit was about. Obviously, two slightly different views. I try to blend them in the following. The obstacles to interior vision, which cause mental distraction, are as follows. Disease inertia, doubt, disengagement, laziness, sensuality, frivolous mind-wandering, inability to practice thought suspension, inability to find the center point or to stabilize union. Okay. It's a pretty good list of things that it would be great to get rid of, right? Pain, despair, nervousness, and disordered inspiration and expiration are coexistent with these obstacles. So it seems like there's a few more that they left out of the first list. 
Here is Charles Johnson, grieving, despondency, bodily restlessness, the drawing in and sending forth of the life breath also contribute to drive the psychic nature to and fro. I derive, the side effects to the obstacles are pain, grieving, despair, restless nervousness, and labored or disordered breathing. I'm not sure why I said side effects, but it seems like not a bad way of putting it. Hopefully a little clearer. Bon Giovanni in the next section. For the prevention of the obstacles, one truth should be practiced constantly. Charles Johnson, steady application to a principle is the way to, stop, to put a stop to these obstacles. I derive from that the only way to put a stop to the obstacles and their side effects is to constantly practice the principles of union. Okay, here we go. By cultivating friendliness towards happiness and compassion towards misery, gladness towards virtue, and indifference towards vice, the mind becomes pure. I really like this statement. Particularly indifference towards vice. There's a tendency when you're trying to improve your own situation to really be against, to position yourself as being against things that you see as being bad, impure, damaging, indulgent. And here we're being told indifference is the proper attitude. Huh. Whatever. <laughs> it's sort of a neither here nor there. It's of no real interest. It just, it, it is what it is. I think that's a really wonderful attitude because when you position yourself against something, you strengthen it in many instances. Probably most instances, maybe even all instances. Fighting against is really you're putting energy into the thing that you don't want. Anytime you're giving something energy, it has something to feed off of. So that's probably why they say you become what you hate. Hatred is an anger towards the thing that you don't want. And it seems to be basically true that if you put a lot of energy into hating something, you're going to end up becoming it because it's going to take you over. So there's an awful lot that could be said about that. And if you just take a look at what's happening in the world nowadays, it's pretty clear that that's a general rule that pretty much 100% of the time ends up fulfilling itself. So this is probably one of the most important and valuable little tidbits in the whole piece. There's an awful lot of them, so maybe I shouldn't say most, but indifference towards vice. Let's see what Charles Johnson has to say about this. He says, by one, sympathy with the happy, two, compassion with the sorrowful, three, delight in the holy, and four, disregard of the unholy, the psychic nature moves to gracious peace. So again, disregard the unholy. Now, of course, figuring out what is the unholy, maybe it's not that hard, but there might be some question in some places. What I derive from all that by cultivating friendliness towards happiness, compassion towards misery, gladness towards virtue, and indifference towards vice, the mind becomes peaceful and pure. Next section. Optionally, mental equanimity may be gained by the even expulsion and retention of energy. 
So here we are given yet another technique, an amazing number of techniques. Charles Johnson says, or peace may be reached by the even sending forth and control of the life breath. So breathing exercises, pranayama is basically what's being discussed here. We would call it qigong in the Taoist uh, Chinese tradition. I derive alternatively serenity of mind can be attained by the even expulsion and retention of the life breath. Or, another section, activity of the higher senses causes mental steadiness. Charles Johnson says, faithful persistent application to any object, if completely attained, will bind the mind to steadiness. I derive or by absolute concentration on any object whereby mental steadiness can be achieved. So, to some extent, it doesn't really matter what the object is. The idea is to stay with it. And just it. So it's union with an object. And in many respects, you could say, our personal relationship with God is dependent upon the object that we choose for devotion. Another option given in this next section, or the state of sorrowless light, that's Bon Giovanni's way of saying it. Charles Johnson says, as also will a joyful radiant spirit. And I say, or by a joyful state of being spiritually illuminated. So, Another possible object that we can concentrate on is our own state of being, our own attitude towards our life, our existence. And I'll tell you that our, our first guest, who will be first appearing next week, and then he and I are going to have a conversation that will be the following week after that. One of the reasons I was attracted to him is because of his joyful, radiant spirit. So, um, I guess maybe I'll ask him whether this is a, a focus of his, of his meditation. But I would imagine to some extent it must be. that It seems like a cultivated attribute. It's a good one. Another way is the mind taking as an object of concentration those who are freed of compulsion. So, this would be an archetype, a role model, if you like, someone who you admire. It might be the sage in the Taoist tradition. Charles Johnson says, or the purging of self-indulgence from the psychic nature. So that's a different formulation. In this instance, it's not taking the object as another, someone else, it's taking the object of being simply removing the self-indulgence from your psychic nature. So it's a generalized category of mind activity and the removal of that as being the object. The particulars are not important. It's the general category. And I said or by focusing in intent on ridding the mind of compulsive mind activity. So I guess I, I kind of sided with Charles Johnson there, although now I'm thinking maybe I should have included something about taking the sage as a model, someone who has apparently achieved 
maybe the reason why I went with Charles Johnson on this is because I, I feel that for many of us, there's no model available, not readily available, not someone that we personally know. And how can we judge someone who we don't personally know? I think if you spend intensive time with someone, then you can know. But just because someone is acclaimed, it doesn't really give us that much information about them. The only way to really know is to really spend time. So, you know, if you spent a lot of time with me, you would realize that I'm, I'm not a very enlightened person. <laughs> so I'll try to be as completely transparent about that as possible. Ridding the mind of compulsive mind activity is another potential object to meditation or depending on the knowledge of dreams and sleep, is what the statement is here, Charles Johnson, or a pondering on the perceptions gained in dreams and dreamless sleep. So another meditation, I say, by pondering the significance of dreams and the messages gifted after sleep. Sleep and dreams being mind Activities that derive from nothingness is sort of the way it was phrased, and I brought that into question a little bit last time. But there is something, I guess, it's pointing out the value of things that might easily be dismissed, that seem to come out of nowhere. And since the goal is to relieve ourselves of all mental activity, to still the mind, then nothingness is the end goal, you might say. And uh, so there's a certain type of relationship that sleep has with that nothingness that we might want to pay some attention to as an object of meditation. The next one is, or by meditation as desired. Now, as desired, Charles Johnson says, or meditative brooding on what is dearest to the heart. So this to me suggests or by meditation on heart attachments. In the same way that we might meditate on the things that are cluttering the mind, we might also meditate on the things that we're yearning for, that we're feeling, that we're both drawn to and, and repelled by. So the kind of heart activity is maybe what's being discussed here, and meditating on that basic nature, noticing what it's doing and gaining some some distance from it transcending its dynamic that has the most play over us when it's unacknowledged when we're not quite aware of it when we're just wrapped up in the drama of it that's basically what this meditative process is about is getting to the point where we're able to recognize the phenomena without being taken over by it recognizing the phenomena of thought activity, recognizing the phenomena of emotional activity, and not being completely convinced that that's a ride that we need to go on. That's the first step, loosening that bind. All of those various options now appear to be summarized in the following statement, the mastery of one in union extends from the finest atomic particle to the greatest infinity. Charles Johnson says, thus he masters all from the atom to the infinite. So by noticing all of these various objects and 
gaining control over the fluctuation process, then the way I derive it is the range of one who achieves union extends from the finest atomic particle to the infinite. And of course, atom means the thing which cannot be divided, and that plays a little significance here. So atoms are quite a, quite a beautiful word for this. It not only happens to be one of the smallest things, of course we know that it did end up getting divided somehow, yet again, into various particles. Nevertheless, the concept is a super, super, super small thing that can't be divided anymore. When the agitations of the mind are under control, the mind becomes like a transparent crystal and has the power of becoming whatever form is presented, knower, active knowing, or what is known. That's Bon Giovanni's version. This is another one of my favorite sections. When the perturbations of the psychic nature have all been stilled, then the consciousness, like a pure crystal, takes the color of what it rests on, whether that be the perceiver perceiving or the thing perceived. So that is Charles Johnson. Here's my stab at it. When the agitations of the mind have been overcome, consciousness becomes like a perfect transparent crystal, able to become whatever form it perceives, whether that be the object perceived or the perceiver itself. So here we have objects as one potential, but the object can also be the faculty of perception itself. And this becomes the doorway into the next section, which is really going to be about what's called here the ultra-meditative state. Bon Giovanni says, the argumentative condition is the confused mixing of the word, its right meaning, and knowledge. Then Charles Johnson says, when the consciousness poised in perceiving blends together the name, the object dwelt on, and the idea, this is perception with exterior consideration. So I derive from that, the argumentative condition is perception colored by exterior consideration, which is caused by mixing up the object being considered, the idea of the object, and the word assigned to it. This is a problem that I have, the argumentative condition. What's being said here is essentially that it comes about as a result of a confusion between a word, the idea that the word signifies, and the actual object, which is neither the idea nor the word. So what is this really telling us about language and thought? It suggests to me that the qualities of an object are always separate from our perceptions. That when it really comes down to it, we get impressions of what an object is, but the actual object itself is something beyond that. And this is, in many respects, substantiated scientifically. We know, for instance, that light is reflected off of an object. So when we perceive an object, we're seeing the frequencies within the visual spectrum that are rejected by the object. So you could make the case that what we're really seeing is what the object isn't. Because the object has an affinity for certain frequencies which it will absorb, and those are the ones that we don't see. So is it possible that our perceptions are always of the thing that the object doesn't want, 
we're getting basically messages that are rejections. So when energy goes towards an ob object, the object will take whatever energy it can and it will get rid of the stuff that it doesn't want. So in a way, everything that's being thrown off is kind of like the shit that the object doesn't want. And so we are in a very humble position here. We really don't know what the hell's going on. And we're making an awful lot of decisions and doing an awful lot of activity based upon our ideas of what things are, which are probably very wrong. So the argumentative condition, it would be interesting to know what the Sanskrit term for argumentative is, because it's not really a, it's not a word that's used in the Charles Johnson translation of this section. He says exterior consideration, which is a fascinating term. So perception with exterior consideration. So you could say that on a certain level, what we're talking about here is a predisposition, we're, that we're basically coloring what we want to see. Exterior consideration is what we want. So we're fitting things into a picture that we've already formed based upon our own particular uh, wants and desires. It's how we see the world. And this is an obstacle. It's an obstacle to a spiritual practice, you could say. Certainly, probably the biggest obstacle that I have in this whole thing, because I'm definitely someone who has an argumentative nature. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with that, how to manage it. This is related, perhaps, to some extent, to the concept of hubris. I think it's also related to the fall from grace story. It's the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that causes the natural world to unravel. You have this concept of good and evil, which I have heard is probably better thought of as being a distinction between advantage and disadvantage, which is to say that in the natural state, in the Garden of Eden, the, the pre-fall period, natural cycles were able to regenerate themselves because there was no interference from a consciousness disturbing the natural order. Things accepted their lot in life. And the thing that changed everything was when mankind decided that we were going to try to seize control of the steering mechanism and move things towards our advantage. So the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of what we could do to game things and gain greater advantage and to minimize the things that we didn't want, that's what started the process of the natural world unraveling. Because as we gained greater advantage, we pushed into the various niches of the other living beings. And that displaced them and caused kind of a ricochet effect throughout the natural world. You could say that one of the reasons why we had certain dietary restrictions was to prevent us from overstepping our bound by opening our our palate to all of these other things we essentially gave our population more fuel 
So by bringing more energy into the human population, we became out of balance with the rest of nature and forced a lot of other living beings to behave the same way, to become more competitive and, um, what's the word? Now, I'm not sure whether this is something that we can really pin entirely on human beings, because you can make the, the case that the same thing is exactly what happened in the very earliest forms of life. So the Lynn Margulis idea of the planet being populated by a single bacteria, which then choked itself out on its own effluence, which is what the oxygen is that we're breathing now, suggests that this basic pattern is kind of built into the fabric of, of nature itself. So the question of whether or not there's responsibility here is one that's worth thinking about and debating, pondering, meditating on, if you like. But I guess that really what it comes down to is we did develop a kind of intelligence that suggests that we might have had the possibility of, you know, particularly when you take a look at some of the indigenous cultures and their respect for nature and their care of not disturbing that balance. We did have the potential, perhaps, to avoid things getting out of kilter. But for a variety of reasons, which maybe we'll talk about in some other podcast, that's not what we did. So whether or not it's natural or whether or not we hold responsibility, I feel that we hold responsibility, but that just might be a... I might want to meditate on that feeling and see whether or not that's a something worth holding on to. The sense of responsibility is something that we really shouldn't reject lightly. There is a cost. You can call it karma, is the cost of the actions that were taken. And we have to own up to that. So even if it were a completely natural process and we were just fated to take this path, we can still take responsibility for the thing that we've played a role in. It has to be acknowledged that there's been an incredible amount of destruction in the wake of the ascent of man, you could say. The ascent of mankind. And to dismiss that on the grounds of it being beyond our control, it seems to me quite... It's just a lame-ass excuse, really, because so much of what we pride ourselves on is our ability to control our circumstances. So to say that at the most basic level, we're completely out of control and that on top of that somehow or another, we've done all these remarkable things that require our ability to control stuff, uh, just doesn't settle with me. Can't get comfortable with that. I apologize for the background noise. I'm going to yell at my dog and I'll be right back. So the next section discusses what would not be the argumentative condition. So uh, Bon Giovanni says, when the memory is purified and the mind shines forth as the object alone, it is called non-argumentative. Charles Johnson says, when the object dwells in the mind clear of memory pictures, uncolored by the mind, as a pure luminous idea, 
This is perception without exterior consideration. So again, this idea of argumentative being exterior consideration, having some other, because basically when an entity within a system has its own idea of what's going on, it's necessarily argumentative because the larger context of the larger domain is something that it can't comprehend. If it's going to go with the way things are, then it won't form mental pictures of what's happening. This is kind of a Taoist concept. In the purest form, the Tao, those who are Taoists go with the way things are. They don't try to make things the way they want them to be. So I think that there's a there's a definite relationship here between all of these ancient ways of thinking. And you could say that the concept of hubris and the concept of the laws of man and also of, um, in Buddhism, of desire and the consequences of all of these things are the difficulties that we're all struggling with. So whether or not it was baked into the cake it's because of our forming ideas based upon our preferences that we have created the conditions of increasing chaos and confusion and lack of coherency within the natural world. Anyway, so... Um, the, the way that I combined the Charles Johnson and Bon Giovanni is the non-argumentative condition is perception without exterior consideration. The result of the mind taking on the object alone without memory objects interfering. So without coloring something by a bias. Without having a preconceived notion that you then compare to the phenomena being observed. The next section says, in this way, the meditative and ultra-meditative having the subtle for their objects are also described. So, Charles Johnson says that as the same two steps when referring to things of finer substance are said to be with or without judicial action of the mind. So, I extrapolated there um, there exists an ultra-meditative state of greater subtlety without judicial action of the mind. I think that just cuts to the chase. So, what is this ultra-meditative state? Bon Giovanni says, The province of the subtle terminates with pure matter that has no pattern or distinguishing mark. Charles Johnson, subtle substance rises in ascending degrees to that pure nature which has no distinguishing mark. From that I derived, this subtlety is refined towards the most pure nature, free from differentiation. And so that is this ultra-meditative state that goes beyond any kind of differentiation, transcends differentiation. 
Ron Giovanni says these constitute seated contemplations. Charles Johnson, the above are degrees of limited and conditioned spiritual consciousness still containing the seed of separateness. So I think there's a little confusion here. My sense is that maybe Bon Giovanni started to lose what was being talked about because the seed of separateness seems to be referring to all the other ways of thinking. The way I interpolated this section is... The other states of spiritual consciousness described above are conditioned and still contain the seed of separateness. So, to distinguish the ultra-meditative from everything that is being discussed previously in this sutra, what we're talking about is when you're contemplating an object, there's still a separateness between the perceiver and the thing perceived. And the ultra-meditative starts to break that separation down. This is Bon Giovanni. On attaining the purity of the ultra-meditative state, there is the pure flow of spiritual consciousness. Charles Johnson says, When pure perception without judicial action of the mind is reached, there follows the gracious peace of the inner self. From that I derive the ultra-meditative state, free from judicial action, produces a gracious flow of spiritual consciousness from the inner self. So inner self seems to be a key quality of the ultra-meditative state because the object being considered is the self. So self-considering self, you could say. It's a recursive phenomena that eventually would break down difference between the thing being considered and the thing considering. Bon Giovanni says, therein is the faculty of supreme wisdom. Charles Johnson says, In that peace, perception is unfailingly true. From that I derive, in this ultra-meditative state, perception is unfailingly true. Why is it unfailingly true? Well, because you're not creating false constructions within the mind. Every construction has the potential for falsehood. It's always going to creep in. All ideas have limits. Those limits are where the idea no longer really functions. So, in the state of mind where no idea is being formed, that is perfect truth. I don't think that necessarily this means that all of a sudden everything you think is true. Like if you sort of come out of an ultra-meditative state, and then you start to think thoughts again that they're all going to be true. I don't think that's what's being said here. My sense is that we're talking about the truth inherent within this state because it doesn't create abstractions. So there is a fundamental reality being experienced and every abstraction is a distancing from reality. So in this mode, you're eliminating the distancing. So it's not like you're going to be able to like get all the true stuff and write it down from that mode and then bring it back into the world and talk about how true it all is. Which, you know, begs the question, what do we do with a text like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali? Because <laughs> that's exactly what that is. So what's false in this? You know, what's false are the potentials for misinterpretation. And obviously there's disagreements between the way it was interpreted by Bon Giovanni and Charles Johnson... And I've seen one other translation that I think is even worse. That, that, is, that is bad. And these two, I feel, are quite good, but it seems like there are some problems with them. We've already picked out a few just in this first section. 
Okay, let's move on. We're almost at the end of part one here. The wisdom obtained in the higher states of consciousness is different from that obtained by inference and testimony as it refers to particulars. This is maybe somewhat similar to what I was just saying. Charles Johnson translates that the object of this perception is other than what is learned from the sacred books or by sound inference, since this perception is particular. I think there might be a little problem in that formulation. So what I said is, the wisdom attained in this ultra-meditative state differs from the knowledge obtained by inference and testimony because inference and testimony are particular. So my sense is that what's being referred to there is the particularity is not union. Union is undifferentiated. When perception is particular, we're not in the state of union defined by yoga here. The next section says, the habitual pattern of thought stands in the way of other impressions. Now just check out how this is translated differently by Charles Johnson. He says, the impress on the consciousness springing from this perception supersedes all previous impressions basically the opposite thing that's being said here. What I gather from it, it seems to me that this is, this is, the, this is the penultimate statement of the sutra, of, the, uh, of this section of sutras. So it must be summing up something really important. Why would it be talking about habitual pattern of thought standing in the way? That just doesn't sound right to me, because we're talking about cultivating what you would really think of as being a non-habitual pattern of thought. So maybe what he was reading had something to do with a way of making this way of thinking habitual. So by practicing and it becoming habitual, is it standing in the way? Well, what Charles Johnson is saying is that it supersedes all previous impressions. And I think that's probably more like it. So the way I derived all that, I said the influence on the consciousness bringing from the ultra-meditative supersedes all previous impressions. And the reason why I like that is it makes sense that if you're able to get to the point where there is no differentiation, and in particular, if that has the qualities of grace and peace that are described here, wonderful, a wonderful place to be then, of course, as with most things, we would prefer to be in a wonderful place than to be back suffering, slogging around with our mental objects. So my sense is that what's being said here is when ultra-meditative, undifferentiated consciousness is achieved, it supersedes all previous efforts. So it's kind of like the holy grail of meditative activities. Our last section, Bon Giovanni. With the suppression of even that through the suspension of all modifications of the mind, contemplation without seed is attained. Charles Johnson. When this impression ceases, then, since all impressions have ceased, there arises pure spiritual consciousness with no seed of separateness left. I derive from that, when all mental fluctuations have ceased, there arises pure spiritual consciousness with no seed of separateness remaining.
So we made it through the first section of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I'm not sure if we'll be doing the rest of it, certainly not in the immediate future, but if there's an interest, uh, we will continue to work our way through this text. And we'll also add a number of other texts to the mix, but I think there's something really important that needs to be discussed here. And it's a subject that came up in an interview that I conducted uh, with the person who I'd mentioned earlier in this, uh, in this episode. And we had a very interesting, wide-ranging conversation. And one of the things that we covered was something that was mentioned in the recent quote-unquote debate between Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson. And Žižek at one point or another remarks that, um, I believe it was Heinrich Himmler, carried a copy of the Bhagavad Gita in his pocket throughout his career as a member of the upper echelon of uh, Nazism. And that the concepts within the Bhagavad Gita helped him to commit the most atrocious acts. I think it's really important to emphasize the hazards of misinterpreting, or that perhaps it might be said that this type of text, I'm making equivalency here between the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras, because they're both talking about unification with the indweller, if you like, with the universal soul, and how that, that dissolves the individual being. And so then one can think of oneself as an instrument of that divine being. But that's a slippery slope. And some people have envisioned themselves as then having license to commit genocide or to do whatever they please. It's really hard to believe that that would really be the result of this process. I think it's a far more humbling process, but it has been used in that other way, and that I think of as being a grave danger. And the way that we discuss it in this upcoming episode, I think it's worth mentioning here because you never know if someone's going to listen to that other episode, so I want it to be included as part of this so that people can have a, a context within which to frame this. One of the things that's talked about often is the middle path. And within the gunas, it was described, I believe, in the previous episode that you have this concept of sattva, which is seeking to free oneself. It's like the enlightenment spiritual industry. And that itself becoming a material mode of nature, it, it's a way of losing the path. If the path is the middle path, then you wouldn't veer so far that you would no longer care for the material. There's a way in which that detachment might lead one to completely renounce any material existence. But this seems like an absolute rejection of reality because the material existence is obviously real. All we're learning is that we don't understand what it really is. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The phenomena is occurring. That's all we really know. It is occurring. It's real. Don't diminish it by thinking that somehow or another you've transcended it. That's hubris. Another way of phrasing it is that 
those who would devote themselves to a spiritual path and completely deny the material are Luciferian. It's a form of devil worship because it's not honoring the marriage between God and the creation. The creation matters. It is of significance. Just because we can't understand it and know exactly what it is, that doesn't mean it's not real. The opposite mistake is to consider the material real and that the spiritual doesn't exist and that that's just a figment of people's imagination. That's considered satanic. That's kind of the Rosicrucian way of looking at it. And the ideal goal is Christic. It's the unification of the material and the spiritual. That's what Christ represents. You could say that Christ is the, in Hegelian terms, the synthesis, or rather Hegel's term was concrete, of the thesis and the antithesis. It depends on which one you think is the thesis and which one is the antithesis. Did the spiritual come before the material or what have you? It's who knows, but they are clearly antagonists. You have something that is posed and you have the counter position. So you have a materialist standpoint, you have a spiritualist standpoint. They stand in opposition to each other. The unification and the redemption and the middle path is to embrace them both. Care for the material, even if you don't know what it is. Abide by the spiritual, even if you don't know what it is. That's how things really work. At least that's what I believe. I hope you found this interesting. We'll see you next week. Well, we won't see you next week. You will hear us next week. We'll be broadcasting next week. I'd love to hear from you if you want to say something. Silent Assembly at ProtonMail.com Patreon.com slash TaijiReality T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y Until next time, adios. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. If you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>